Hello, and welcome back to the Real Professional Podcast, the podcast where air quotes real professionals interview non-air quotes real professionals about all aspects of the gaming industry. This is episode four. Today we're going to be talking to Astrid Romarin from Evolve PR. Today I'm joined by Jesse, Christine, and Remy. we got a full house today. Say hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello, everyone. Cool. Perfect. Alrighty. So uh, let's uh, let's get going. Got a lot of stuff to talk about. So drop that sick beat. Beat drops. Okay, everyone. Seems like we're uh, we're almost at the end of September here, which means that I might finally have time to like go outside and see sunshine again because I've been locked in my my gamer cave playing nothing but uh, should I have to review? Which our guest later today is part of the reason to blame for that, so we can all point fingers at her and and scream while our eyes bleed. So that'll be good. But uh, yeah, have you guys uh, been been playing anything this week? What's what's been going on with you guys? Well, I've been checking out a little bit of Untitled Goose Game. Oh, God, please. How, how is it? Everyone on the internet is talking about Untitled Goose Game. I love it's that game good. so much. It's pretty good. Christine, you just like uh, it because you get to play as a bird. That, and you get to be an ass. <laughs> you get to run around chasing people, locking them in closets and other buildings, and it's, it's fun. Christine, it's, it's 2019. You don't have to be locked in a closet. Yikes. Remy, Remy, what's what's your take on Untitled Goose Game, the game where you uh, get to take out all your being an asshole fantasies? It's like the argument in a shower game, as far as I can tell. It's like the, man, wouldn't it be hilarious if I did that thing? But you get to do it as a goose, so it's all okay. Well, you know, it's a puzzle game uh, in, in its hardness, right? You're looking at different reactions for different uh, situations. You know, you got to figure out how to trip people up. And the fun of the game is not just thinking, I'm going to do this assholeish thing. It really is sort of the moment where you get to realize, oh, this assholeish thing is a way that I can accomplish my end-up goal, right? Yeah. Uh, just like it's, not that you, it's not that you want to steal the kid's glasses. It's that the kid trips and falls and his glasses drop, and then you can pick up the glasses. And that's, it's, it's kind of that wild goose chase, right, uh, of trying to figure out what the puzzle solutions are. You know what it kind of reminded me of in a weird way was uh, Katamari Damacy, which is that like when mm. you're the, you have a specific order that you can do stuff in, and as you're doing it, you realize that like there's more, like it leads to bigger things. You know, like you're 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 like in Goose Game, you do this one thing that opens up these other paths. It's like that old school like uh, kind of adventure game logic, and um, but like you know, there's this like this kind of larger nonsensical comedy world, and the more you do, the more you open up to interact with. You know. I would say like the pointed click adventure kind of a take on it is a better way of portraying it than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really does have that kind of logic of, I wonder what happens when I combine this object with that object and then click on this guy. It, it's the same kind of thing, except it removes that UI element. So it's like getting a lot of buzz right now because it's adorable, but do you think it's going to have any like longevity? Like Everyone loved Goat Simulator for like 12 whole days. I oh, mean, I pre-ordered Goat Simulator and then immediately was like, why the fuck did I do that? Did you know that the like Goat Simulator made so much money that Coffee Stain Studios now publishes games? 
That's hilarious. Yeah, they're publishing Midnight Ghost Hunt, and so I mean, it's like, yeah, Sanctum wasn't going to make them that money. It's a fucking Ghost Simulator. I mean, I still open it every once in a while just to get a kick. Ha! Huh, literally, because like, you kick people in that game. <laughs> no, it's it's a solid little puzzle game. Uh, that's that's the fun thing about uh, Untitled Goose Game is that it is a game. It's not just a tech demo with a goat in it. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, like Good Simulator, if I remember correctly, was originally a joke. Like they didn't, they weren't actually making it. Yeah, yeah, and then they made a lot of money, and now they're investing it into other things. I, I, look, I, I, as a game, I don't like Goat Simulator, but as a company, Coffee Stains doing just fine for themselves. They they took that money and they didn't take a trip to the Bahamas. They invested it into themselves. I probably took a trip to the Bahamas too. That game made like a fuck ton of money, and its budget was it was like next to nothing. Look, I, I cannot get mad at a premium game for selling quite a lot. Yeah, if, no, I, I you want to talk about the injustices in the world, you want to talk about how many fucking middle-aged moms are, like, built out of anything they saved up because some Match 3 game was released on the iPhone? <laughs> uh, this That's not podcast, a laughing matter, it's fucking sad. This That's, podcast so brought to you by smooth. Raid Shadow Legends. Raid Shadow Legends, the game where you can buy a currency to buy a currency that allows you to buy a currency to buy arena tokens that helps you unlock more currency. Enter code DREADXP for your next 500,000... Raid bucks. Raid bucks uh, for only 10% off. Yeah, for 10% off, you'll, you can get your, your you can spend all your life savings, just 10% more. Uh, Christine, what have you been playing? Um... So I was finishing up Blair Witch, and I played that, and I straight up had a panic attack towards the end because of the, the, the scary stuff. Yeah, I, I saw. Was I was really I was watching on stream. I saw that you killed the dog. Can you explain why? I don't want to ruin anything, though. <laughs> yeah, um, I was I was watching uh, Christine play, and it's it's so fun for me to watch her play scary games because she like still has emotion. And, uh, like, I play scary games, and this is, like, why I don't stream is because watching me play video games is horribly boring. It's just, like, straight-faced. I'm, like, taking notes the whole time, so, like, every time, like, something spooky jumps out, I'm, like, over to my notepad, like, oh, yeah, the scare at this point was quite good, like, effective. And, like, there's no visual representation that I have uh, feelings on the inside, um, because I don't. So, but watching you play it was pretty fun. Uh, I find it it was interesting because it was... The, the day I played it, I had gotten no sleep for, like, two days, and I was I was pretty much exhausted at that point, and I found out that I'm more reactive when I'm, like, deadbeat exhausted than when I'm fully awake, so that's, that's something to experiment with, I guess. <laughs> that's the sacrifices you make for your art, you know? You gotta yeah, you know. keep depriving yourself of that sleep. <laughs> Speaking of fucking anime, I'm, I think I'm actually at this point suffering from acute anime poisoning like if i if i if you find my body in the morning it's it's from an overdose of what are your symptoms kawaii uh i i've started dreaming in hyperbole that's pretty nice um i've stopped being able to communicate i can't look at a woman without my nose bleeding that's that's another big problem i'm having right now I can uh, see a big X-shaped vein on your forehead. Right yeah, now. I don't know how that got there. Apparently, it's just if you watch enough anime, you get the big X-shaped vein. Um, I I now eat ramen in waves. It's just like slurps straight into my face. Um, no, I'm I'm not a huge anime fan personally, but uh, I've been playing Code Vein recently, uh, expecting it to take as most Dark Souls games do, like 15 hours to beat. Turns out the game is 60 hours long. Uh, 58 of those hours being cutscenes 
And uh, if I have to listen to another 10-minute speech about the importance of friendship again, I am going to throw my PS4 out of the window. I... Like, this is... I, you know what I want? I want an anime. Welcome to anime. I want an anime where the power of friendship gets everyone killed. Like, it turns out that, like, they're being chased by the predator, and they're like, no, if we just stick together... And, like, the one guy that hides in a locker is the guy that lives. Like, that's the anime I want to watch. And no one's in high school, and the girls have realistically proportioned breasts. Like, that's, that's what I want to watch. Is, is it that even anime? an anime at that point? No, it's not. That's the that's that's the thing I'm saying is that. So I've talked to uh, roughly everyone in earshot about this fucking game, and everyone's like, "Yeah, that's that's anime." And I know that, like, so I know that I'm the the only one in this in this in this call that doesn't like anime. Uh, Christine is is a is a is a weeb. Jesse over here watches JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, so he can't make any moral high ground claims that. No, but I still recognize that. Anime is the lowest form of art, um, <laughs> second only to uh, podcasts. <laughs> but uh, and then Remy over there is like he's like an anime fan, but like only if it's like some weird anime created by like a small studio with, and he's like the fluidness. Of, like he likes Secret of the Kells. Like that's that's a, that's an anime that he'd like. Like he doesn't like an anime if he Secret goes to of a Kells. Is is a European cartoon. I know, but what I'm saying is that like, remember in college, like we had the the idea to start an anime club, and then everyone would walk in on the first day, we're just like taking rips off of a bong and watching heavy metal. Uh, I do remember that. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the like you're if you won't watch an anime if you go to a convention and anyone else has ever seen it. <laughs> like that's that's your thing. You won't like you don't like the otaku anime is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's true, but I, I don't think that you can call anything by Cartoon Saloon located in the Japanese province of Ireland anime. <laughs> I think my favorite anime is uh, uh, the 1982 When the Wind Blows. Mm. It's a classic. It's, what's that? That's the one where it's the two British people in the uh, countryside and they're downwind from a nuclear blast. And they're, oh. just, they're just dying slowly of radiation poisoning yeah. over the course of the next few My days. favorite anime is, uh, what's that one with the rabbits? Uh, Watership Down. Yeah, Watership Down. There we go. Oh my god, of I saw men. the trailer for that this week. That was so messed up. It's a you sad movie. You saw the trailer for it now? Yeah, I had never heard of it, and somebody at work brought it up, so we watched the trailer. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> like... that's, uh, that's classic Western cartoon. It even had that weird sort of like a folk music section. Like it, it's, it's, It still holds up except for that. That was kind of weird. Anyways, I realized that I probably Code Vein probably wasn't the game for me when I walked into one of the zones and I was treated to a five-minute cutscene of a guy explaining that he still eats onigiri, which apparently are like Japanese rice balls, and uh, that it, it reminds him of why he's he's still a human despite the fact that he is a vampire. Mm. And, wow, and that's powerful. Yeah, yeah. We really do live in a society. So your character also is a silent protagonist, so all of these... Uh, speeches are of course done to someone just staring at them, which oh, is the essence of anime. Like no one wants to watch an anime with real dialogue. They want to watch an anime where someone like lectures at them I guess that's for hours. Of, I guess that's part of the escapism where you can put yourself in the context of it, where you can more easily visualize yourself as a protagonist. But because it's aimed at anime consumers, they're like too awkward to say anything. So. <laughs> It's actually revealed at the very end of the game that your character can speak in the last line of the game, which was like, good. Like, the, that's a good artistic yeah, choice. The last line of the game, everybody's dead, and your character just is like in this, this deep baritone voice, 
Damn, that sucks, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, there's there's like so many tropes in the game. The first character you meet is a girl with the face of a 14-year-old mm. and uh, the, the, the breasts a... of a 50-year-old stripper. And it's it's ridiculous. And uh, she's wearing bondage out gear bandages that she never changes out of, of course. Um, and, oh, there's there's a big... So there's a gift system in the game where you can give people gifts to get friendship points, of course, because it's a can GRPG. You pet, can you pet them on the head and for... <laughs> no, you, but like, you got to figure out which characters like which gifts. And so there's a, a large African-American character named uh, Davis. And uh, he likes protein powder, of course. That's his gift of choice. You find out early on that uh, revenants, which are what the you are, lose most of their memory or parts of their memory. And he's lost so much he can't even remember his name. Then, close to the end of the game, you find out his true name, which is, you guessed it, Tyrone. Nice. Because they, they don't know that other black names exist in Japan other than Tyrone. So Is it really Tyrone? It's fucking Tyrone. I'm not even kidding. And like you're in this flashback scene, and you find his wife, whatever. Okay, every time you want to level up a skill in this game, unlock a new skill, you have to watch a cutscene. And there's like four trillion right. skills in this game. It's like... That's nauseating. It's so nauseating. Um, and yeah, you, you find out that he's looking for his wife and his wife's like, have you seen my husband Tyrone? And I was like, oh my God. Um, and then of course you beat the bad guy with the power of friendship and love. You know, that's that's the, the game. And it sucks because like I actually really like the combat. Like the combat is solid. There's some bad stuff in the combat, but it's almost impossible to criticize an anime game's mechanics because 90% of the game is just like watching these characters awkwardly not tell each other that they're in love. Like, holy shit, this is the game where vampires like eat people. And like the people are still like, no, I can't tell you I love you because I'm too awkward. There's like seriously like a girl's about to die. So a girl has been turned into a fire demon, which is like just part of the plot that just fucking happens. And you you kill her and then they you go into her memories where she's still alive and the man that she's in love with and has been in love with for the whole game is like, I brought you some onigiri. So that comes back. Don't fucking skip the cutscene where he eats the rice ball. It's a big plot point. It's like, and, and then she's like, I, I have something to tell you. And she's like turning to Ash and she's like, I love, and then it cuts. And then she like is revived as a giant fire demon again, but like a good one. And he's like, what were you going to say? And she's like, I love your Onigiri. It's just so great. I'm like, oh my fucking God, you're a fire demon. Like, you have been through worse shit than awkwardness with boys. But, like, you can't say, like, hey, I, I have feelings for you. And that happens four fucking times in this game. Like, four different characters, like, just can't say I love you right before they turn into demons. It's like, Jesus Christ. Anyways, that's why I don't like anime. <laughs> It's it's so weird. I don't know. I'm just I'm just not the market for it. Time that rent. It's yeah. We're gonna take a time stamp, and it's just gonna. It's this is. We're clocking in at 25 minutes. I don't. It's like, dude. Anime just isn't for me, dude. I talk to girls. I like go to the gym. I like. I don't know. I have productive friendships. I I've like you know. And, and anime is like this whole thing is like. Oh, it's like, like you're talking about self-insert. Like everyone can imagine themselves being like the super cool guy that's like fighting the, the, the big devil. But like that real life thing, like talking to a girl, oh, I can't do that. That's too scary. It's like unless she falls panties first out of the sky straight on my face. Like that's the only way I'm ever going to meet a girl. Like it's so fucking weird to me. Anyways, 
Um, goodbye, 90% of our audience. I've alienated all of you. All four of them. All four of our listeners. Sorry, Mom, for my long rant on fucking anime. Um, but yeah, uh, that'll actually lead me into our discussion topic for the week, which is uh, going to be on uh, sequels. And this is for two reasons. First, uh, The Last of Us 2 finally got its release date announced. Uh, as we all know, it was uh, announced. Last of Us 2 was first announced when the first one made a billion dollars. So, of course, it's going to be a sequel. It was officially announced at E3 2017, 2016. It was announced in 2016. 2017 is where we saw the first, like, real trailer. Uh, no, I'm thinking I'm getting my years wrong. Whatever, it doesn't fucking matter. But uh, we finally got the announced date, which is that it's February 21st of next year's when it's going to come out. So not that far off. And um, it's the first reason I wanted to talk about sequels. And another more interesting reason is that uh, Code Vein, the game I have just been ranting about uh, as all of your ears fell off and your minds turned into, into jelly... Uh, from the pure majesty of my voice. Uh, Code Vein, turns out, is actually a secret sequel to the God Eater franchise, which I missed because I'm not a fucking nerd. But uh, when I went on forums after to find out if there were multiple endings, uh, the, 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 the internet was ablaze with discussion about how this takes place in the God Eater universe. So... Yeah, I um, we we live in an era where uh, you can't have new ideas. It's against the law. It's illegal. You have to go through a process where you uh, present your uh, your 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 relations to previous franchises before the Council of Disney, and they decide whether or not you should be granted uh, with a, with a, the rights to one of the sequels. And if you do have a new idea, you have to, of course, prove the way that you shamelessly ripped it off of someone else. So in this. Uh, end times apocalypse hell world darkest timeline of uh of sequels uh, we might as well uh, learn to embrace it so uh yeah i want to wanted to talk a bit about uh good sequels bad sequels so uh i gave you all some homework would you would you guys would you guys bring for me to to slurp up today who wants to go first how many points after i get for turning it in late Turning it in late. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's there's no late deadline on this because we are you know here right now. What you what what has anyone got? Christine, you said you wanted to talk about some stuff. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, so I had two: I Kingdom Hearts two, and Evil Within two, which are two very different games. But what they both bring to the table is that they they both did significantly better than their predecessors in filling in the parts of the stories that need to be filled in. So, like, with Kingdom Hearts, without giving away too many spoilers, Kingdom Hearts, in a nutshell, is all about, you know, the battle between light and dark and uh, stealing hearts and things like that. Um, so, with, with Kingdom Hearts 1, it really... As much as it was about establishing the characters, I think it got a little lost in trying to want to be too big in its storytelling, and it made a lot of people confused. Um, so what they did in two with that was they kind of backtracked, and while they were still introducing new characters, they were able to fill in a lot of the plot uh, a lot of the plot lines and storylines that uh, really needed to be filled in um, for clarification in order there 
in order for there to be spin-offs and and uh, more games and things like that. Um, and just with with two, um, they took even even down to its like battle system uh, because in one they had the they had the gummy ship system and it was it was confusing how you were like going about building it and things like that they really cleaned that up in the second game and actually made it enjoyable um so that's kind of my thoughts on kingdom hearts 2 evil within 2 does focuses more on its uh story storyline um it does what um i think that rogue one did for the for the new star wars franchise or for the star wars franchise where it took a small piece of or, or took a piece of its lore and made an entire, you know, movie around it. Evil Within 2 does the same thing where it takes a small... Literally, the the whole plot of Evil Within 2 is based off a, of a newspaper clipping that you find in Evil Within 1, and it's never mentioned again in the game, um, unless you go looking for it. Well, so, I, thought, I thought Evil Within 2 was more based off of the DLC for Evil Within 1, which was like kind of what elaborated on the story. No, no. There's actually a snippet in Evil Within 1 which mentions the the fire and, and his daughter um, his daughter dying, mm-hmm. which is the kind of the, the, the plot of uh, Evil Within 2. Right, right. Um, so you can, I'm sure, I I haven't played through all the DLC for Evil Within yet, so I'm not sure if maybe I missed something, but in unless you're looking for it, it's not something that you really find, but it really does bring this story together um, in a lot of ways, because it explains why he went, in, why he went into the Force and why he is the way he is yeah. and, and why he looks at the world the way he does. And it... And I think that if they hadn't made the second game, the not that it would diminish the first one, um, but it definitely adds a lot to the characters. And I think that the even the battle system is uh, the because in, in Evil Within One you sit down in a chair and to to build your skills and stuff like that, and they redo that in in Evil Within Two, but they they definitely. Um, broaden it and open it up to new possibilities. So I, I like that about the game. <laughs> yeah, even within one, uh, the plot was like gobbledygook nonsense. Like there was a plot with the the bad guy, and mm-hmm. he was so like the basic idea is that everyone's brains are plugged into this machine to create a like a, a world together. Like and, a hive mind. Yeah, for like no fucking reason. Like even within one doesn't like explain like what their overall goal with it is, other than like hey, we got this hive mind, like, why don't we just plug people into it? And then if you plug a serial killer into it, it fucks it up. Oh, wow, damn. But you, like, need a serial killer's brain in order to create the baseline of the world, I think? Like, that's... You, don't, you don't need a serial killer's brain because... I can't, I can't really say what, what you need without spoiling the second one a little bit, but it's, it's not necessarily a, a serial killer's brain, it's just a specific type of mind and then uh how did evil within two end i don't remember um you you like you find your wife and she's like turned into a pillar of salt because she looked at gamora while i was like oh right uh when god told her not to yeah i remember now i don't know it didn't it didn't make sense but 
or something. Yeah, basically his wife turns into a big monster lady. Yeah, and you kill her, right? Yeah. Uh, well, nothing's really dead. It's all just... You can spoil a game that's been out for three years. Jesus, like, don't, don't fucking worry about it. It's fine. It's hard to spoil something you don't really understand. <laughs> Somebody actually got mad at me for spoiling uh, something from a game that's 22 years old. Yeah, well, that guy can go fuck himself. Damn, dude, why would you spoil Citizen Kane for me? I was just... <laughs> <laughs> the fuck's Rosebud, bro? Fuck, man. Yeah, yeah um, I actually... Yeah, I, I kind of agree with your, your points, and I think that the best sequels are the ones that, like, genuinely expand on the world in a interesting way. So, anyways, the point of all of this is that I actually think it's hilarious that in my, my whole point was... Talking about how everything is a sequel, franchises can't be new, you have to go to Disney to get your approval for everything. And one of the games you chose to bring up is not only a sequel, but a sequel that is built off of the intellectual property of Disney. Like it's it's like a it's like a it's like a it's like a extended universe fiasco that game. I'm, I I know people love it. I'm being an asshole here, but I, I was never a, a huge Kingdom Hearts fan because uh, I was that hipster and in high school that uh, when everyone was playing Kingdom Hearts, I was like, I'm playing Unreal 2 because I'm edgy and cool. Shooters it was boys play. It was one of the few games that, is, uh, that I was allowed to play in a, in a uh, conservative Christian household. Because <laughs> it had Donald Duck in it? Yeah, but then, like, Nightmare Before Christmas freaked them out. So like, <laughs> nothing says there. conservative Christian mom more than being iffy about a nightmare on, before Christmas. <laughs> it's like it's like anyway. Yeah, everyone has that that kid who's like parents were like just a little too like Magic the Gathering. They're like, well, it says in the Bible that magic's bad, so they can't play Magic the Gathering. Like, I, there was a kid in my high school that could play Yu-Gi-Oh because it didn't have magic in it. But then when his mom found out that there was a certain kind of card in the game that had magic on it, she was like, Fuck, and she burned all his Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Which is what actually Jesus said that. He said, burn your Yu-Gi-Oh cards in the Bible. It's one of the numbers chapters. Yeah. Uh, cast not your cards before swine. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I, uh, but I think, I think that there is like definitely a way that like sequels... Like, a lot of my favorite games of all time like, are sequels. Like Mass Effect 2, uh, God of War 2 is one of my favorites. Like, so many, there's so many great... Uh, sequels out there but at the same time it's like so many of these games also end like there's it's so easy to see like the it's it's like you can see through the veil into the marketing meeting behind it like how does Mass Effect 2 end with him being like the Reapers are going to come in like nine months see ya see ya when we release the next one goodbye and uh, God of War 2 literally ends with you standing on on Gaia's head Saying, like, Zeus, your son has returned as you're about to fight all the gods. And it's like, see you in the sequel. Bye. Sir, finishing this mission. But, uh, Remy, I know you've got a lot of opinions on things. Well, I mean, sequels are interesting, right? Usually, when you're looking at a uh, game business, you have people come out with an original IP, and then they launch it. And it either gains traction or it doesn't. And if it does gain traction, there is demand for a sequel, so they get funding for a sequel. And because that they've made the one game before, they're a little bit better at it, and so that they can maybe take a couple more risks or do more polish that they realize it. They just got the, the wheels greased and turning at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And sometimes they come out with things that are not really sequels, especially way back when. Sequels used to be just the next iteration of the game in the same engine because they had that. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when you look at a, a, a something too, what you're looking at is the old game plus more, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, you asked me like, to, to think up some of the most disappointing sequels I've ever played. I cannot tell you how more disappointing I was being a kid and plopping in the long-awaited next installment of my favorite video game, Chrono Cross. Oh, I God. I wait to play Chrono Cross. Oh, my God. With, with Chrono and Marl and Luca and Frog and, and Robo and every one of the gang. I couldn't wait to see their faces again. I oh, couldn't, couldn't wait to, to go through the storyline of going back in time and changing things so that you can affect the time stream. That, that's the core storyline mechanic of the game, Chrono Trigger, is seeing what happens when you change things in the past and how it affects the future, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's how you would surmise the, the core narrative loop of that. So what is Chrono Cross about? It's about fucking alternate dimensions. You know mm. what happens when you go to an alternate dimension? Things are fucking different and you don't know why. You go to a different dimension, and it's a, a weird fucking different planet. It's a weird place. There's, it's just, it's strange, and it's, it's, it's just, there's no fixed point. This game did not have seven characters. Seven characters that you could see all their quests and, and their interactions and everything. They had something like 150 or 200 fucking characters. And people defend it by saying, yeah, but a lot of the characters don't matter. Then why do you have 200 characters if they don't matter? Oh, yeah, I remember that now. Fuck. I was, like, trying to remember any of this while you were talking about it because, yeah. Okay, wait, wait, quick quick side note, though. Didn't they make a Chrono Cross 2? I'm trying to remember that. I believe that they had a planned sequel, but... This, I think it was canceled. Either that or it was like taken off and, and turned into a different game or something like that. I don't know. It soured me. The, the, the history of Chrono Trigger and the Chrono franchise, I guess, is, is a messy one. They brought up a bunch of really hot list uh, game developers of the time, the Dream Team or something like that, uh, to make Chrono Trigger. And these are people who made a lot of amazing stuff. They got a Takira Toriyama, who was famous for Dragon Ball. Uh, they had the guy who made Dragon Quest. Just a lot of like stellar people working on this game. And they made something very cool. And then, for Chrono Cross, uh, this, this offshoot creator, I think it was one of the sound designers of the game, was then brought up to lead the project, and it just was so unrecognizable from the original. Well, yeah. Uh, in that one of the dangers of making like a, a sequel franchise is that sometimes you don't get to get the game number two or three out there because mm. sometimes you make Chrono Cross and it's a huge weird question mark on anyone who wants to get into it. Is, is that a Squeenix franchise? Uh, I believe it is something that is locked into the Square Enix lockbox. Yeah, that's what I that's what I think because uh, it's it like it's a Square game. Yeah, it's a Square game. Yep. Yeah, that's what I was because like. So we were having this discussion uh, two weeks ago when we were talking about like Capcom and like I'm curious how Capcom works because uh, like I don't I don't really know like who's in charge of what projects but we were talking about with like the sound guy getting like promoted to being like lead dev for 
Chrono uh, Cross, it's like that whole like Square Enix has like so many franchises that are profitable under their their belt, like with the Final Fantasy series and shit like that. That uh, it's kind of weird to see like where some of these these franchises go, mostly due to problems on the management end. You know, it, just in terms of how Square Enix has been treating Chrono Trigger, it has so many diehard fans. It has so many people who remember it so fondly. The nostalgia is very strong with it. Uh, and all they do is that they released a remaster version on DS or Steam whenever they need money to funnel into whatever horrible Final Fantasy series installment they're making next, which is also just a franchise whose sequels have always gone in such a weird direction, although I've got less of a gripe about that. I, I think that the probably the most egregious thing I've ever seen is like the sequels to Final Fantasy games like Final Fantasy X-2. It's like you couldn't make an eleven; you had to make ten too. Or uh, how many versions of thirteen were there? There were quite a few. There were quite a few. I've got a, uh, a a bit of an awkward story. Speaking of Final Fantasy, so you know how I live in West Hollywood, and West Hollywood has the West Hollywood Halloween Parade every year. Ah, you got a lot of people who are dressing up in amazing costumes. I go one year, and I see this guy who's dressed up like a Final Fantasy character riding a chocobo, and this chocobo has like real eagle feathers or something like that this thing is expressive it emotes it blinks it snaps it has just an amazing amount of animatronics in that alone and he's done up like he's ready to be just 3d animated then and there we we just the person i was with we went over and we geeked i was like my god this costume it's amazing you look so fucking incredible he's like hey you guys like final fantasy and i'm like yeah we love it it's like what's your favorite final fantasy i'm like well, I really like 6, and, you know, my friend was like, I really like 10. He's like, you guys play 8? And we both kind of go silent and go, we checked it out. (laughs) And he looks at me, and he smiles, and he's kind of, like, nodding. He goes, "Uh, I made (laughs) 8. That's pretty fucking crazy. Wow. This is, like, I, I explained at the beginning, we were having some call problems that, like, a Skype not working with just one specific microphone would only be a problem Remy runs into. Like, bumping into the guy that made Final Fantasy VIII and just, like, ha- offhandedly saying, like, ah, I didn't like that one is, like, something that only would happen to fucking Remy over here. You know, uh, it great makes for great stories for podcasts, though. Um, Jesse, did you want to bring up any of your, your favorite uh, or least favorite sequels? Well, we were just talking about uh, Just Cause... Oh, God, yeah. The Just Cause series, and... I was saying that Just Cause 2 is the best and that it gets progressively worse because it just tries to be itself more. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it starts out, like you were saying, it starts out where your character has, like, a double rocket launcher and a minigun in his pocket. Where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Just Cause 1, I don't want to say it's realistic, but it's centered in reality. Just Cause 2... Um, your character is a um, is a, a a wizard who flies uh, with a magic grappling hook and um, has infinite parachutes in his in his uh, in his fanny pack. But other than that, there's only a couple weird things going on in there. Um, and then just cause three, it's like totally off the walls, and it's just a good example of the uh, the power creep in media where they the developers feel the need to like well they're like well we did this last time we need to make we need to make the story bigger Mm -hmm. and there's only so big you can make the story like you know 
It's like if Ocean's, like, like the newest Ocean's Eleven movie, or like ten Ocean's Eleven movies from now, they're like, we're going to steal Kazakhstan. <laughs> um, you know. Put little rockets on it and it flies off into space. Yeah, I mean. Take uh, it to their moon base. Yeah, I mean, even the. Uh, you're gonna need a you're gonna need a Chinese acrobat, uh, someone that looks like Julia Roberts, and uh, uh, an old man that pretends to have heart attacks, and you can steal all of Kazakhstan. That's really all you need. <laughs> um, but yeah, just cause two. This is a pinnacle of gaming. Well, I, I think that you're right. Is that sequels always like feel this need to ramp up, and. Um, which is why, like, always I find that the sequels that do the best, like, still have places to go. Like, you can still see where they're going to go. And the ones that do the worst, you're like, where are you going to go from here? Um, because, like, it's, they're, they're kind of, like, start being crushed under the weight of their own franchise. Like, uh, Mass Effect. Start off, every choice you're making is going to matter till the end of the trilogy. By the time you get to Mass Effect 3, like, it doesn't really fucking matter if you killed the Rachni Queen in the I... I um I stopped playing Mass Effect three twice because both times I accidentally made um uh, who's the alien with the mask like what? the alien girl you can oh romance? Tali Tali I made I I accidentally genocided her race and she killed herself and she was the person I was trying to romance and I was so devastated <laughs> um, and then I played from the beginning of Mass Effect one like years later I was like tried to do it again. Same ending. Same, or like, same, uh, same thing. I tried to ally the Geth and the, uh, the Corians, mm-hmm. and I fucked up, and I was like, well, I can't let Legion die, because he's the coolest one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tali. <laughs> so to me, the, uh, the true ending is when um, you and your best bro, Rex, uh, are fighting, um, fighting the, the, the Reaper, and you summon a big worm, and um, the Solarian scientist uh, dies, but it's a good redemption death. And then you go back to your base, and like you and Rex fuck, and it's like, <laughs> and uh, everybody's happy. Yeah. And everything was beautiful, and nobody hurt. There we go. That's the canon ending to Mass Effect two or three. I can't even remember which one we're talking about right now. But uh, yeah, and then you had uh, Mass Effect Andromeda, which was like, well, we we finished. So I guess we got to just start a new galaxy. And I'm going to be straight. I, I actually like Andromeda. It got way more shit than it deserved. but uh, It still deserved a lot of shit. Yeah, I mean, it deserves a lot of shit for what it is. It, it tried, like, the first half, like, tried to be a Disney movie where it's, like, everything your character said had to be, like, super whimsical. It's like, yeah, things are tough, but we're, like, the brave... The brave little toasters. The brave little toasters who are, you know... You know, things are going to be okay. We're, you know... I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I'll cut this. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's just... Uh, I, I just think... It's so, it's, so, it's so funny because, like... Mass Effect Andromeda was, in cor- of course, going to happen. And it was, like, of course, going to bomb. But it was going to happen because, like, franchises are so bankable. And, I mean, like, even if something is... If you have, like, a hotly demanded sequel to your game and you just don't have the rights to it anymore, like, you're going to see a, quote, spiritual successor, which are their own form of sequels. Bioshock was a spiritual successor successor to System Shock 2. Uh, Divinity Original Sin was, like, a spiritual successor. Well, it's, like, it's technically a successor to Divinity, but it was more of a successor to those, like, Baldur's Gate games, right? 
And everyone knows this. I'm not bringing up things people don't know, right? How could you say something so controversial yet so brave? <laughs> but, you know, now that we, we've seen these games uh, come out and do so well, now what we see is, guess what got announced? System Shock 3. Like, Yeah, System Shock 3 and Baldur's Gate 3. Nice. Like, the games that were inspired by these games did so well that they got the sequel that should have been the original game. It's just like, it's, it's like franchise inception. Oh, it's like, oh my god, it's like the, the layers that you keep having to peel back it's to so figure cool out. That Steven Spielberg is making uh, E.T. 2. <laughs> he did. It was called uh, Super 8. Well, when it comes no. to, to this, I mean, you take a look at what a video game sequel is. And again, it's it's looking at the series of mechanics, especially, in a, in a way to progress them. The reason I didn't like Chrono Cross is because it took all the mechanics of Chrono Trigger and it said, whoop, we're doing something completely different now, right? But when you're looking at something like a, a System Shock 3 versus a Bioshock versus a Bioshock Infinite... These are games that have wildly different mechanics apart from the very basic of click on people until they die, right? Mm-hmm. With with uh, Bioshock, you had the, the system of uh, having like uh, different guns versus different plasmids. With uh, Bioshock Infinite, it was a much more of a sense of mobility with the game where you're supposed to have sort of this roller coaster ride of where you're killing people. And System Shock and System Shock 2, very much a traditional creep-and-crawl kind of uh, first-person RPG of the day. Whoa, right? wait, wait, wait. Give me a second. Bioshock, the first one, was basically a rip-off of System Shock 2. Like, it, from the, the creepy-crawly, the, the using a pipe uh, or a wrench or whatever, the, uh, the fact that you're being kind of pushed around by a, a, by a person that turns out to not be the person you thought it was, that turns out to be the last boss, and the last boss is disappointing... That's like it's like straight like shot for shot. The only difference, real difference, in bio, between Bioshock and System Shock is that you didn't have to put like six points into exotic weapons to be able to hit someone with a piece of crystal. No, that's that's what I mean. Bioshock was a simplification of System Shock too, of course. Yeah. Uh, but that simplification means that the core gameplay changes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So if they're announcing a System Shock three, I would hope that they're coming back to the system of having these RPG level up elements uh, rather than just making a another Bioshock kind of system. Right? Yeah, that's I, what I think is the interesting thing of going back to these old systems like a, a Baldur's Gate. I would hope that they they really figure out how to streamline and polish the Thaco system rather than just making uh, whatever uh, new system that they've got on top of it. Uh, because then, yeah, I would hope that they're doing something with the mechanics itself that that keeps sort of like that line strong between each title. I, I, so in terms of just being like a narrative, this happens next, I'm less interested. Baldur's Gate 3, I'm sure, will be fine because it's made by the original Sin people and they're really, really good. Uh, Larian Studios has done great work. I don't know who the fuck is making System Shock 3. I really should do my research, but I don't care. And um, the only trailer you've seen is like a giant cyborg spider monster that looks like he was ripped from doom mixed with hellraiser and you're firing a big laser gun at him so whatever i I just know that system shock 3 is happening not a lot of information has been released about it but that's the the funny thing is, is that like these franchises are going back to like it's it's like how do you make a system shock 3 in the world where bioshock exists and bioshock was basically a revamp of that franchise because they didn't own the ip anymore like how do you fucking do that 
And you got to look at what the core mechanic differences are. No. And if the core mechanic differences are like the degrading system for weapons, it's having to have a level up system, it's a much greater sense of creeping, crawling through the dark rather than charging through and then just wrenching down uh, big daddies. No, no, no. Uh, Fuck that, dude. Here's what you should do. You play as the cyborg boob monsters that, that have drills for fists. And, uh, and then it, this one's about how communism is bad instead of space capitalism. You know, that's, in terms of, like, franchises, I'm kind of disappointed in where Bioshock as a franchise went. Uh, weren't we all really excited when we heard that every Bioshock was going to be this world that's based on a sort of political or philosophical worldview, and it shows kind of like a dystopic element of that? And then with Bioshock Infinite, it kind of dropped that just to say that racism is really bad and it had some tones of imperialism, but also different dimensions. What is it with me and not liking different dimension games, by the way? That yeah, seems to be something I don't know common. what's up with you and thinking that uh, racism is okay, though. That's, that's, a, that's a weird little point you have there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you heard it here. And I also <laughs> like that Bioshock forgot all about like the... Uh, like the class war and even the racism and the uh, imperialism is just like, man, that, uh, that one guy is real bad. Everything else is fine, but oof. Well, whatever. Bioshock 2 is the best sequel of all time because you get to play as a big daddy and it's, it's really cool. And uh, anyone that doesn't like the game is wrong. I'm wrong. Well, no, okay. So I actually went back and played Bioshock 2 again recently and I don't want to diverge too long on this, but it's way better than you remember. Like everyone's shit on Bioshock 2 so hard when it first came out. But going back to Bioshock 1, like if you play Bioshock 1 again, it's not as like narratively interesting as you remember it being. And Bioshock 2 is not as basic as you remember it being. Like I was like, wow, I, I was really swept up in the hype. of It came out at a time where video game stories were, were, were changing a lot. So anyways... Uh, this is this all kind of like leads back to circles back into like what makes a good sequel. Are we excited? First of all, I'm super excited about The Last of Us too. I think Naughty Dog has has done great work with sequels before. I mean, um, Uncharted two is is really great. Uncharted three is great. Uncharted four was even even great, um, despite the fact that there's no monsters in it, which I was always my favorite part of Uncharted. Is like towards the last ten percent of the game, it just becomes a zombie shooter, which I always thought was fun. And, uh, you know, Last of Us 1 was about one character. Last of Us 2 is a new character. It's the same. It's, you play as Ellie instead of Joel. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see where they go. And it's, like, it's not like this world doesn't have room for expansion. In Last of Us 1, we saw a very, very specific story. Um, we saw Ellie and Joel go across the United States to try to find the cure for her uh, rampancy or whatever it was. Uh, and then in this one, we're going to be seeing a new kind of whole new set of characters, whole new story. And I really like that. Um, I like extended universes rather than narrative, quote, sequels. Like the, the Halo 3 is a narrative sequel to Halo 2. Like Halo 2 ends, says, see you in Halo 3. Halo 3 starts right where Halo 2 left off. I don't really like those games. I find that to be like very, very, uh, shoddy writing and uh yeah and then you know the most interesting thing is that when you start taking talking about sequels that are like not what we would consider a, a quote sequel but like part of an extended universe so control came out recently and control it turns out is part of the extended 
Alan Wake universe. You play through 90% of Code Vein, and you find out that it's part of the God Eater universe. Um, but there's other games that, like, like Nier is technically part of the Drakengard series. And, like, most people wouldn't know that unless you're really big fans. Do you know Warframe is technically part of, like, the, the game that they made previously, Dark Sector? Like, that's really cool for people that are big fans of Dark Sector, all one of you. And that, like, Warframe is, is an evolution of that. But then, you know, then, uh, of course, we get evolutions of the series that turn out really badly. Like, you know, we get... Uh, you Dawn know, of War 3? Dawn of War 3! Uh, and don't t- tell me that you don't like sequels, Remy, because Dawn of War 2 is one of your favorite games of all time. You know, Dawn of War 2 is one of my favorite games of all times. Uh, absolutely, it is. And I, I think you and I, we would go back and forth about whether or not Dawn of War 1 or 2 had better mechanics. Dawn of War 2 had, like, uh, had better mechanics for sure, but... I, that's... Yeah, so... I, there is a sort of a distinction. I think a lot of people would say, like, the Chrono Cross kind of feeling happened when they were huge fans of Dawn of War 1 and then went to Dawn of War 2, though, yeah? Yeah. Like, they play incredibly differently... And they took a very different tact with how the gameplay works from one to two. They did the same thing with three, trying to bridge the two together. And then instead of highlighting uh, some sort of best aspects of both, they kind of just homogenized them into something that was both one and the other. And in order to do that, they kind of had to hit everything with the samey stick as well. Anyways. But yeah, um, you know, with, with Dawn of War 2, what really made it great was that it, it, it like dared to do something different it had a completely new mechanic had no base building it actually like not even did things different from dawn of war one but from other strategy games in general and um that's what i find with like a like control is a game within the alan wake universe but it's like a very very different game from alan wake and code vein is a very different game from god eater and even though i i can whine about its anime-ness like it's really cool that we get to see different aspects of this universe and uh yeah, and uh, you know, really, I'm, I'm the the point I'm trying to make here is that I hope that Last of Us Two manages to significantly evolve on the Last of Us One, and I, I hope that for the future of especially that IP, we get to see different aspects of that Last of Us greater world. Quote quote. Like I would want to see a Last of Us game where you don't play as either of the characters; you play as like some dude in like. I don't know, fucking Mumbai and trying to survive out there and build a city or something. Like, that would be a cool game. I agree. I'm definitely tired of Fallout games taking place in the, uh, you know, East Coast. Like, just the same burnt out, like, green wasteland. Yeah. Christine, would you like Last of Us more if it had Donald Duck in it? Um, no, but I do like the idea of having DLC where you could play, or even, like, a main game where you could play as characters other than the, like, the main cast. You're just some random guy or something like that. Yeah, I I would like to see, like, my greater point here is that the, the sequels that stick with us the most are the ones that significantly evolve on mechanics and not just, like, do the same thing. And... Like, when you have a numbered sequel, like Last of Us 2, uh, fucking Mass Effect 3, you have a certain expectation of what the game's going to look like, play like, and feel like, which it makes sense. But when you have a spiritual successor, like Bioshock versus System Shock, was able to significantly alter the mechanics. Or when you have an extended universe game, Warframe versus you know Dark Sector or uh, you know Control versus Alan Wake, you can really not only expand the plot, but expand what you expect from that style of game, which then becomes part of the lexicon of what we expect from that universe. 
So let's see a strategy Last of Us. Let's see a, a, a kart racing Last of Us, kind of like Mad Max, but with, with The Last of Us, and everyone's sad. Okay, everybody name a game that needs a good kart uh, version. Yakuza. Uh, XCOM. XCOM kart? Yakuza kart? I think Yakuza kart sounds good. Yakuza kart is actually coming, though. Well, thank God. I was going to have to hold my breath. The Korra game. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh... Oh, Dawn of War. Dawn of War cart, that'd be good. I would play as the Space Marine cart. Checks Quest. Checks Quest cart, that was a good. That'd be a good one. Leisure Suit Larry. Leisure Suit. They had that. I'm not kidding. Leisure Suit Larry had a uh, like a racing game in one of the newer ones where you like are in golf carts and shit. It was. Uh, I can't believe those games still exist. Technically, everyone's googling it at once. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, my my uh, keyboard was out there. Uh, it, to, to, uh, the one on Xbox. Up, What's up? Uh, to bring up a point, I was thinking about because I because when you were talking about um, sequels and and expectations and things like that, um, I was thinking about what I something I read about um, Devil May Cry two recently. Yeah, and De- talk about it. And Devil May Cry two is is one of those is one of those games where. It had such a strong first game, um, and then two basically just kind of backtracked. Mm-hmm. They completely changed the character. They completely changed the the style, but it was so like it's it's widely recognized as the worst game in the Devil May Cry series. You can like, use the word. Actually... You can use the word bad, Christine. It's okay. I I know I can. I did say it. Is the worst. Wor- okay. Anyway, um, so it's it's just so they somehow got the funding to make the the next. Not somehow. It's I mean it's Capcom, but um, <laughs> they got the funding for the for the third game, and they used they they essentially from what the um, creator was saying in in this interview was they basically looked at two as a springboard for making three uh, on what they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And basically they were just like, everything we did, we didn't do. We're not going to do in three We're we are going to like spruce it up and like make him look nice. And the graphics look nice. And the battle system is going to be better. Is a, it's going to be different, but we're not going to do anything that we didn't do. And from, from three on, it's been a much, a much, more well-written, cohesive, like I think, piece of a series. Because, like, if you if you play one, three, four, and five without ever having played two, I think you would be okay. What about DMC? Get out of here with that. I like DMC. Ninja Theory is a good studio. I uh, and I, I liked the the brown-haired Dante. I thought he was a he was a cuter boy. Blondes are gross. Mm-hmm. They're icky. I have I have no comment on that game. Anyways, uh, I actually that's funny because uh, you know you bringing up uh, Devil May Cry because like as you were talking about how it was bad, I was literally checking my email to make sure it wasn't uh, Evolve that was sending me the code for it. Who is going to be who we're talking to next? It's like oh fuck, it's one of one of hers. Um, so just real quick, uh, all the Sniper Elite games are fantastic. All of the zombie ones are the best. Unironically. Uh... The Nazi zombie games I really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. um, I played those a lot. Yeah. Um, well, the second yeah, one was the only here. one I had. 
I think that the pinnacle of sequels and like evolution of a franchise um, is where in Sniper Elite they added the DLC where you get to shoot Hitler and then the ball. Well, that's the thing is that later Sniper Elite games added more like physics to where you could shoot people. So I think it was three is the first one where you could shoot someone in the balls. Two was the first one where you could shoot people in the balls. Anyways, uh, there was well, no, no, no. Okay, so three is the one that had the mission to shoot Hitler, where he had so two it had the shoot Hitler DLC. Three was the one where you had to find Hitler, and there was different like Hitler doppelgangers, and um, like he had body doubles. And one of the ways you could tell if you shot the real Hitler is that the real Hitler only had one ball if you mm. shot him in the balls. Um, I know he didn't just have his doppelgangers half castrated. Well, that's just one of the mechanics. Like, wow. it's just like, and uh, I did, this is true, at E3 this year, I got to ask about Sniper Elite, Nazi, Zombie 4. I, I, no, it's okay. So it's no longer Sniper Elite. It's Zombie Army 4 is what it's called now. Um, and she'll yell at me in a minute here if I got it fucking wrong. Uh, and I, I got to ask, is Zombie Hitler in the game? And if he is, does he have one ball? And they said that they couldn't comment on the, the nature of the plot or the specifics of the plot, but if that if there is a zombie Hitler, he will be depicted anatomically correct. So you know they you hear it here first, folks. One ball zombie Hitler. DJ Alex Extract Otero, who you can find in the description below. But uh, we're back, and we're now here with the lovely Astrid Rosmarin of Evolve PR. Say hello to everyone, Astrid. Hello. Evolve PR is a PR company that's, that works with press like me to give them video games. So why don't you give yeah. us a rundown of what you do? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the... The main thing that Evolve does is it tries to make sure that people know about games. And so the game developers and publishers are our clients, and we do whatever we can to help them find their audience and new eyeballs and, and for media to try and line them up to review the game and put on events and kind of all the stuff that encompasses marketing video games. So the most um, the most important question I have is on your totem pole of of journalists. How far down am I? You are three quarters to the top. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of people that are trying to get into the industry imagine themselves getting in, you know, to make the game of their dreams. They imagine themselves on the developer side. Maybe they think of themselves as an artist, very, you know, even a smaller subsection think of themselves as, um, you know, the, the music guy, they want to make video game soundtracks, but PR is something that's like a job job. And, you know, people don't often think of themselves getting into the industry from that, that angle. So, uh, why don't you go ahead and give us like an overview of your journey through the industry? How did you get interested? Like what got you started? Give us that rundown. Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's something really cool about the games industry in that it's so new compared to a lot of other entertainment industries, and it's also growing and evolving. 
or <laughs> it's changing a lot. And so quite literally, a lawyer can work in the games industry, accountants can work in the games industry, like any person who wants to do any specific job can probably find a role for themselves in this industry, which is pretty neat. From my perspective, I started closer to the television and the film industry in Canada, and here they're kind of linked a little bit, games and TV. So I started by working for a funding agency where we basically uh, allocated money to, to developers and producers and filmmakers and in all the sectors of interactive digital media. And the goal there was to try and encourage Canadian content to be developed. After that, I moved on to a trade association where our whole job was to promote and encourage the growth of interactive digital media in Ontario, which is where I'm from. I'm from Toronto. And, uh, and video games is part of interactive digital media, but it's not the entire thing. There's, there's e-learning and sort of any kind of entertainment that is also interactive falls under that umbrella. Um, so part of that, we put on a bunch of games industry specific events and conferences and workshops and, and knowledge base sort of programs. Um, and that's how I really started to meet all the key Canadian players in the games industry. And we have a really big industry here. And so then when I moved to Montreal, which is one of the biggest industries in the country, I just kind of went full blown <laughs> into the wind. And I, I joined a lot of groups like Pixels, which encourages women to work in games. Um, I started working for a little indie studio in Montreal. And I really just, I networked a lot and I tried to kind of meet as many people as I could and, and got involved as much as I could. So I kind of floated around the industry. I had a few jobs, a couple studios, uh, at a accelerator as well, an investor. Um, and now I work for Evolve PR, which is specifically marketing, community, and public relations for game studios and publishers, anyone sort of pushing a game. So how did you land there though? How did you how did you like come to the decision that you wanted to be in the PR side? Because you, you said you did work at like um, you worked at Rogue Factor for a little bit, right? Yeah. So Rogue Factor was the second game studio that I worked at, um, which is they are known for Mordheim City of the Damned, which is a a Warhammer fantasy IP, mm-hmm. and. Um, so when I was there as the communications manager, so in my current role at Evolve, I work with people like who I used to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but the, the big thing is that when you're at a studio and you're doing that work, you are really focused in on one specific game, or in Rogue Factor's case, literally two games, More Time City the Damned and... Necromunda Underhive Wars, which is still in development. 
And so you really are limited in terms of what you're doing every day by those specific two games and the communities that are around those two games. And then more broadly, the communities that the publisher, Focus Interactive, for both those titles uh, is also doing. And so um, nowadays with Evolve, it's, it's that times 20. Like I have, instead of working on two games, I'm working on in any given month, I'm probably working on like seven games or something mm. like that. Um, and so it's just, instead of being knee deep into one marsh, <laughs> I'm in like 10 marshes all at once. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that sounds like a lot of uh, mosquitoes, but uh, <laughs> how, like, so what does your day look like? Like you wake up, you, you log into the Evolve terminal, terminals.io, you check out all the key requests, the people watching, you write up your emails. What's a, what's that kind of workload look like? That's, I, that's definitely part of it. I think the very biggest thing that I, I focus on every day is how can I make sure that I'm achieving a specific goal that my client has set or a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. And almost always that translates into how can I get someone, anybody, to pay attention to this game? And that can take a million different forms, but at the end of the day, the whole driving force of what I'm doing day in and day out is figuring out how to get people to know that this game exists, what it is, why they should be interested in it, who they can talk to to find out more information, where they can play it, all of that information. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's like, um... You know, one of the things that people don't. So we we all get that a PR person's job is to like get people interested in a product. But the the difficult thing from your perspective is like, well, how do I entice people with something that they might not know about? Because you know, from the the consumer standpoint, we we often view from the 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 non professional side of things like PR people as like employees where we consider games to be like our, our passion. So it's like the, the relationship between, and I know that like Christine's experienced this as well between like fans and the people that like work for the company is like very frequently uh, antagonistic. Um, so like, what would you want the average gamer to know about like your job, kind of the challenges you face that kind of like more like, you know, what are some of the difficulties that you face on your side of the, the, the mirror? Was Christine going to say something? I feel like you were. <laughs> oh, no, I was just listening to the rest of his, his uh, question there. Um, in, in, in terms of, of your, your question of whether it's not antagonistic, it, it really depends on the community. Um, and I, I'm sure uh, maybe, you've ex maybe you've experienced this as well, but it, it really depends on... on how the community within that game has been built, um, where the community is at that time, and what's going on either in-game or in life. Um, and that, so it's, like, all situational. You can't really just say, like, flat across all communities, oh, it's antagonistic. It really depends on a lot of factors. Yeah, so, so when I started at Hololabs, the little indie that I first started with in Montreal, it was... Um, it was more as a community 
type of role. And, and I have a lot of experience doing community management and community development. So that's usually the, the approach that I'm taking when I'm working with my clients, the, the studios and the publishers. Um, every community is different and every community needs to be managed in some capacity. They don't happen naturally. And if they do, then, and you're not sort of helping them structure themselves, it's, it's bad news for everybody. Nobody's happy in that situation. And so from my perspective nowadays, it's something that I keep a really close eye on, even though it doesn't, you know, I'm, if I'm trying to get you to review a game, it doesn't matter whether or not I've been embedded in that community for a while, but for some, sometimes it's really helpful. Like one of the games that I'm working on right now, the fact that it is an indie game and it's up and coming and it's taking on sort of much bigger games in the same genre, but the community is super supportive and really engaged and and is growing really quickly, that's its own selling point. And that's a reason for other people to actually hop in and play and review and try it and expose it to their audiences. So I think, honestly, I think community is super important and it's always, community <laughs> people are always sort of shoved to the side when they really should be central to everything that is happening in terms of communication strategies. Amen to that. <laughs> okay, that was like a total, total aside. That was your anime rant. <laughs> no, it's good because um, that's the thing is like the, the kind of the, the weight of the question is that we, we a lot of consumers don't look at the people that are making their games as like or working on their games as like people. Um, we had this discussion last week with like Epic. Um, which is that like a lot of gamers just they just care about the product they don't care about all the humans behind it and they get uh, you know the term heated gaming moment is like now mm -hmm. it's like a heated life moment and uh, but uh, so like what do you in the, in a kind of like a humanizing way what are the kind of the struggles you deal with at your job that like people should understand that like PR people aren't like we have this term it's like corporate you know decisions all these decisions are business decisions Gurg. Like, but how do you want people like to know about what you do in your day and your job, the challenges you face that like, just kind of like show people that you're just another person, you know, grinding away at this game we call life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely lucky in that because I'm so focused on working with my, on the games themselves and with my clients, it's, it's, sort of one-sided. I don't actually deal with consumers very much. When when I have a game launching, I am trying to really sort of engage people on Twitter, regardless of who they are. Sometimes it's other developers, sometimes it's people from my clients' companies, and sometimes it's just random consumers on the internet. Um, I try and do that more because I personally like to, to do that it's not really a requirement of the job but overall I think I think in general people just don't really see the nuances of what we do even when I was a developer in the studio 
working with PR companies and people like me in my current job, I didn't have any visibility into what the day-to-day work actually entailed. So it's not even that consumers don't understand what we do. <laughs> it's that like other game developers don't even really understand what we do. And the the sort of reality is is it's because it's not very exciting. It's like a lot of emailing and sending messages saying, hey, hey, do you want to play this game? <laughs> Let me tell you about this game. And then I'll like send that email thousands of times to hundreds of different people yeah. over the course of many months. And it's, you know, it's not sexy or interesting. It's, it's emails and it's human contact and it's, yeah, human contact is very unsexy. Don't don't ever make human contact. It's gross. It's you know, it's just relationship building and it's it's a long, slow process that you do over months, years, over events. Human connection and relationships aren't really things that gamers do. <laughs> oh man. Well like right for the jugular. Say that again? Right for the jugular. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where the only real human relationships I have is where I, I am almost about to tell someone I love them, and then I get nervous and my nose starts bleeding and I run away. And then you talk about rice balls. And then I talk about rice balls, exactly. Um, but yeah, speaking of that kind of that that you you know you're talking about how a lot of times like people don't really like you're saying that like um, it's like a, a very grindy or boring job at a lot of times. Um, but like, what are the moments of excitement that you have on both the positive and the negative ends? Like, do you have any really like bad horror stories, but also some really great positive stories from your collection of experiences? I mean, the the horror stories are really that when when we fail. Personally, I've never had to be involved with like an actual PR crisis where someone said something they were not supposed to say or or like illegal things were happening, you know, something like mm. that. I I think the worst thing that's happened to me in my position is just that people break embargoes, which essentially just means that I send something to a media person early so that they can have it all ready to go for a specific day and time, and then they post it on the internet earlier than that, and it's... You know, it's like it puts the cat out of the bag ahead of schedule. So then it's like trying to get that cat back into to the bag. Yeah. <laughs> and for that person to be sorry for letting the cat out. You know, all that stuff. I'm a pretty lucky person, though. I know people who have been in a lot worse situations uh, with clients who have said things that are not really appropriate to say on, in public. <laughs> Really? Sounds like yes. you, sounds like you have specific instances in mind. Well, I mean, like, think of any PR crisis that's happened for a game studio in the year of 2019, mm. and I know some of the people who those companies are their clients. So yeah, like, there just needs to be a, a, like a like a like a. I'm sorry, I was having a heated gaming moment. The thing is, so we're kind of like middle people. Right. We're building relationships with our clients and we're building relationships with media all to facilitate the flow of information back and forth. And 
so sometimes a client, you know, like building that relationship with the game studio and the developers and the publishers, that takes just as much work as building the relationships with streamers and YouTubers and, and journalists and other media types of people. And so we're really just like, it's a lot of relationship building. So, you know, on my side of things, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm one of the horrible video game journalists, uh, the, the scum of the earth that exists. And, um, you are not horrible. <laughs> don't be so Canadian. You're too nice. It's like, it's like oh no, uh, no, you're fine. No, no, it's, uh, but seriously, um, on, and on my end of the spectrum, there's like some interesting kind of dynamics when working with you people big quotes um which is what that i mean you people i mean uh, horrible oh, yeah. pr shills the the, the terrible mm. bots their opinions are bought and they're no i'm i'm kidding but someone you know someone actually told me that i was re replied to messages like i'm a bot because i'm i'm very enthusiastic and positive yeah you're very time. excited <laughs> I actually You're... had somebody say the same thing to me over a comment. They were like, this is a very helpful bot. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is that you two are both very excitable in person, and you're also both three feet tall. So, <laughs> no, it would be super great, because, like, if I ever need to get you guys into, like, Comic-Con or something, I can just buy two we kids' passes. one ticket. Oh, yeah, there you go. Or one adult pass and just have you stand on each other's yeah. shoulders with, like, a trench coat and still only be yeah. five feet tall. Yeah, exactly. We'll get something from H and M or whatever. Yeah, that sounds good. For... One of those maxi dresses. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was making a point here, and I'm trying to remember it. But uh, right. So when I'm working with PR people, um, like one of the big questions I always have to ask myself is like, okay, I'm about to like savage this game in a review because sometimes like you don't always represent games that are good, and that's just the reality of the business. And I don't always review games yeah. that are good. Um, would you? So there's this perception in the, the community side that a lot of the video game critics are like too chummy with the companies that they work for. And, and there's in some ways I agree that like the video game journalism side of the industry hasn't evolved to the point of the film side of the industry where like a film critic can say like this movie fucking sucked and like not be afraid that they're never going to get contacted again by Warner Brothers. But on the video game side of things, we don't have those like monolithic um, publishing uh, uh, outlets. I mean, there's like IGN, but... Um, that will allow us that kind of creative freedom to say negative things. So how do you personally react to a negative review? And do you think there's a way that you, someone can do a negative review correctly to still then maintain a positive relationship with the creators? So I, I consider myself to be like Morpheus in the Matrix. I can prep my client for how to go see the Oracle. I can explain why it's important to, to bring Neo to the Oracle. I can get all the information together. I can communicate with both sides of the people who are involved. And at the end of the day, I can only walk these people to the door and they are the ones walking through the door. And that goes both ways. I can tell the media exactly what they can expect from the game and what we're hoping to achieve by getting them a review code, which is a review, because a lot of people take codes and then don't actually review the game. Um, 
and and but at the end of the day they are the ones that have to play the game and they're the ones that have to make the review or not but that's what we're hoping for them to do and i can't influence that in any way i can ask them to i can make them aware if there's something still in development sometimes we send review codes out and they haven't quite finished the game and so i'll say hey heads up networking is still being finished and so if the game crashes because you're a multiplayer eh, that's that's not what the public are going to be seeing mm-hmm. but at the end of the day i can't influence what anyone's going to write and nor should i i'm just trying to match make so that if you like writing about horror games and i'm representing a horror game this game is at least on your radar and it gives everybody a fair shake at it I have to say, though, games like film, like theater, like books and magazines, all of these things are, they are cultural sort of products. The whole point of cultural products is that they are one side business, one side art, Mm -hmm. and art needs to be critiqued just as a statue would be just as a film would be or just as a a book would be or a piece of poetry games are no different from that we are trying to make money in this industry it's not it's not strictly arts but at the end of the day it's like if a if if someone is bringing valid criticisms then fine if if you're ragging on something and you have no reasoning behind it that's kind of a different story. Mm-hmm. I would hope someone that calls themselves a reviewer is critiquing and offering sort of explanations for their their arguments and writing it in a coherent way or, or displaying it in a coherent way in a video or stream or something. But realistically, eh, we, we give people codes and then hope for the best. So what you're saying is, is if I'm going to understand you correctly, is that there's a difference between the YouTuber that's getting a game to then make a comedic video ragging on it and just making jokes about it and someone who is getting a review code for the purposes of critiquing it as an art piece. Yeah, and so sometimes um, sometimes that's part of our job. Sometimes we only get a certain number, well, always, we only get a certain number of codes. Mm-hmm. And so for me, my priority is to understand every single request from a person and what their intentions are. If someone emails me and says, I want a review code for this game, and they don't explain why, and then I go onto their channel or their website or their outlet, and they ha- the only videos they have are like bug compilations. And then I have another person from a website where they write critiques and reviews and, and sort of the screenshots and explanations about what they liked and what they didn't like and information that would be helpful to a potential player or consumer. And I have to weigh those two. Do I give the code to the person making bug compilations or do I give it to the person <laughs> making sort of a fleshed out article about this game I'm going to pick the person who's who's sort of putting more more kind of a more well-rounded approach to displaying what we're trying to show off about this game. 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that. I would say that um, me personally, I have never gotten review code for any game ever and failed to publish the review because I'm perfect. Um, <laughs> that's a big fucking A lie. lot of people. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of games every day. So, okay, so here's the thing. If you look at a list of every single game that launches every day, there's games that launch every day, except for maybe weekends. But if you took that list and then you went on to any website, Dread Central, IGN, whatever you want, and you look at the games that they're reviewing as new games, there are way more games that are launching than actually get reviews and publication. And so part of my job is really just to make sure you're on both those lists and not just the we launched and no one cared list. Yeah, no, I feel you. But, you know, so there's, for me, I try to review every game I get a code for. I'm not always able to. And sometimes it's like, okay, so one of the games that Evolve represented um, was a game called Fade to Silence. I really didn't like it. Um, It was... And I just, like, I started playing it. The game is very long, and I wasn't a fan. And I talked to, I believe that one is being represented by Scott? I can't remember. Um, And I said, or Chris. Chris is representing that one. I was like, hey, man, like, I just, I'm sorry, but I don't have time to review this. And even if I was going to review it, I wouldn't be saying very positive things about it. So I just want to let you know that I'm not going to have time to fit into my schedule. Like, would you prefer that someone that you're working with tells you that they don't have time and doesn't do it, or would you prefer them to just put something out so that you can then report to whoever is the client and say, we got X number of reviews? Like, is it better to have one of your journalists that you work with put out like a half-baked review or no review? Uh, that, that's an interesting question. So this kind of depends on the goals of what your goals are in, or what our goals are with the client. If a client is looking for a Metacritic score, for example, and, and that's the thing that will validate whether or not they succeeded with their game, um, and you happen to be working for uh, a site that is Metacritic approved, and so if you ragged on it, then it would actually physically bring that score down. Uh, that's not great. Like that wouldn't be an ideal situation in sort of my wheelhouse. That being said, if the goal was to have a certain number of media hits, and it's like hey, we got mentioned X many times online, and that has real-world impacts on algorithms, especially on the social networks, then maybe a not-great review isn't so bad. It's, it's all about figuring out how and why you're going to be achieving certain goals. So like, do, is there a point... Have you ever run into a situation where like, you're, you're working with a game, you're representing a game, you realize the game is terrible and you realize <laughs> the best thing for this product would be to pivot 
and to try to get as many people talking about how it's terrible it is as possible. So like the room, it can get sales off of people wanting to play like Ride to Hell uh, Redemption or whatever it is, Retribution, Road to he- Road to Hell Re- Retribution, that <laughs> horrible biker game. Like at some point, the company must have just been like, we're just going to release this as like the worst. It's the Trolls 2 of video games. Have you ever experienced something like that? I haven't. Um, Not that you'd admit it I, if you had. <laughs> I've, I mean, I, I've, I've had long meetings with developers who know that their game is not special enough to cut through the noise, and and this has happened with many developers over the years. There's so many games releasing nowadays, and a lot of them, and nowadays also a lot of the media is focusing on fewer and fewer titles, the really big ones, of course. And so how to get noticed becomes a real long conversation, ongoing strategy that we have to look at. And so sometimes those meetings do turn into that sort of discussion. Well, how can we, how can we bring eyeballs onto this game even if it's in not the most positive light usually it actually takes quite a bit of work to do something like that in a way that won't completely backfire and so so like most people don't even go for it to be honest what do you mean they don't even go for it well like if you want to position a game as so bad it's so good you have to have like some really bang on either script writing or editing in your commercials and like like con- that's a really hard piece of content to make so bad it's so good mm-hmm. normally you try and do that and then it's just bad yeah and so like that's not what you want to achieve it's especially if you're paying a PR company to do this with you, you want to be on, you, you don't want to just have a bad piece of content. Yeah. So, and then on, on the flip side of things, um, you know, it's funny because I was just talking to uh, my friend Barbara the other day, who's the narrative director. She was on our first episode. She's the narrative director for Blair Witch and she works for Bloober Team. And um, Bloober Team, when they made Layers of Fear, the first Layers of Fear, they like... Mm-hmm kind of did it on accident. They were just like looking for projects to do small little things just to kind of keep the lights on in between major contacts because they had previously made this game called Basement Crawl, which no one remembers because it was bad. And uh, they were waiting for something else. I think it was like from Sony, um, like a new contract. And they were like, well, let's just make something in our meantime. Game did great. And I remember that um, Layers of Fear was actually represented by you guys. It was um, before you were there, I believe Tom sent me... Uh, a press kit that had like just a bunch of random shit in it. It was like, kind of <laughs> cool. It was like a painter's kit that had like a like a finger and stuff. Apparently that was all him um, that he like put those together. Um, and like, have you ever worked on a game that you were like, oh, I don't, I don't really know if this is going to be successful. It turned out to be like the most successful game they had. Well, oh, it's, it's it's so hard to tell because I'm working on the games before they launch by and large mm-hmm. for the most part and it's impossible to tell beforehand you just know you you don't know you have no idea you can feel like something will do well 
you can feel like this thing has a really good fighting chance. But at the end of the day, there's so many variables out there. Like, like, oh, if it had only just not launched the week that five other AAA games were launching, or it's a Switch launch and it just happens to launch at the same time as as Breath of the Wild, or like, you just have no idea what's going. Or it it could be a a game with violence in it, and then there's a, a terrible incident that happens sort of in the U.S. or around the world, and then all of a sudden it becomes not really palatable to to push this product anymore. There's there's an endless amount of potential variables that can sink something even though the quality of the game was there, or vice versa, lift something up that might not have been liftable otherwise. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting for me to see on this side of the, the veil because I, I sit over here um, and my job is basically to figure out what my audience likes, figure out what I want to write about, and then try to reach out to you guys, make that working relationship work. And in a way, I think that one of the things that people don't really consider is that this relationship with journalists and like a specific company that's in charge of PR is is beneficial because your job is to create those positive relationships. So I feel more comfortable talking to you than I would talking to, let's just say Focus Home Interactive. If I'm going to talk to Focus and then I don't like one of their games and I say I didn't like it, I have no idea if Focus is going to talk to me again. But you guys, like, as long as I'm not like personally attacking the developers, you don't have that same emotional investment. Um, like I, I have no fucking idea how Sony works. Like Sony does their own PR. They've <laughs> always done their own PR. And as far as I can tell, no one knows how Sony works. I once asked like the Sony people, I was like, is there a way to get on your consistent press list? And they're like, we don't have one. We make a new one for every game and then reach out to people individually on a very specific basis. I'm like, this is so fucking weird. Um, I had that same issue with, with Days Gone. Yeah. You did too? Yep. I, I got my Days Gone copy the day of. So the the thing that you have to understand, well, this is part of the reason why I like the job that I'm I'm in is because we kind of act like a filter. We can help filter some of your feedback into slightly more constructive feedback to the to the studios and the publishers. And then we can help them filter what they really want to get put out into the world into something that's a little bit more palatable for right. a mass audience as opposed to like we want to talk to this one very specific person yeah and, and then we'll go out and speak to more than one specific person and, and that's the thing that like a lot of people don't really comprehend is that like developers are and even like the in-house pr are oftentimes too close to like be able to see it objectively you know and like, well, they're not, but that's not their job. Their 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 job is not to be objective. Right, right, right. Which is why something very specific. Yeah, and I, I I get it. They're doing their job, and I'm not trying to say that like they're doing it poorly by being too close mm. to it. But what I'm saying is that then to have that secondary filter between them and the general audience is 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 a useful relationship. Anyways, I've been like asking all the questions here. So I really wanted to open it up to, to, to the other, the other hosts here. Christine, I know you work in a, a similar field and um, you like video games too. So <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. So, so my question for you would be this. Um, 
I I kind of uh, had the same experience where I where I uh, started with an indie studio. I currently work uh, as a community manager, but when I was working with this with it with this indie sorry with this indie studio, um, I was essentially their their PR person for a little while because they didn't have uh, enough budget to really go and get a PR person at the time. Um, so when they finally had the had the budget to do that, they were they were kind of split between working with a publisher and having uh, having just a PR person. And what would you kind of could you could you kind of speak to that experience of maybe working with smaller studios who have had to make similar decisions? Yeah, I think so. I like to call that position the marketing everything person because <laughs> almost every indie does this mm. of a certain size and and that person depending on how new they are to the industry is either called a community manager and then a step up from this community developer and then a step up from that is communications manager and it's always the same job it's just like all the stuff related to talking about the game in public so community marketing, PR, going to events, doing PACs and GDC and E3 and all of that stuff. A lot of the reason why indies look for publishers is to help them essentially have the resources to do not just PR, but also QA is usually the thing that gets lumped in there because they don't have enough money to hire a full-blown QA company like mm -hmm. to outsource it. It's super common. It's crazy common. That being said, it's, it's not always in the best interest of a game studio to do that. Oftentimes it is. From my perspective nowadays, uh, it's usually the publisher that is our client. Like, for example, one of the games that I launched a couple weeks ago, the client of ours is a publisher and they just publish a lot of indie titles and so they have different games coming out I think they still have five more to go this year <laughs> so it's like it's already October almost and they have they still are launching five more games and you can't really launch that much in December so they have five more coming out in two months which is a lot of games for one studio for one publisher yeah multiple studios anyway yeah it's I don't know. It's it's super common. I think people don't talk about it very much, but it's it's what most indies try and do. And then some of them get lucky with self-publishing. Some of them are starting to do their own publishing. Like I have friends at an indie studio that are now starting to publish other indies to help them out. And they're a bit more lenient with their business restrictions than a full-scale publisher would be. It's all about, again, it comes down to your relationships in the industry and what you want to achieve. Like if you just need help with community or marketing or QA or localization or something like that. Right. Yeah, I know that, that definitely answers the question. It's a, it's a, it's a lot to think about um, uh, for, I guess for different, for different indies, they must have different, uh, the developers themselves, I guess, it comes down to their experienced levels of what they can do, if they can do their own localization or if they can do their own 
QA or something like that. Yeah, and and it's funny because like a lot of developers who are brand new will say, oh, we'll just go into early access. But early access is not, you can't raise money during early access. You have to treat that like it's your game launch. And so mm-hmm. if you're planning to spend your entire budget and then go into early access in order to get more budget, that 99% of the time, it's not scientific, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. What about, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. What about games that that have spent most of their time in early access? What about them? (laughs) Oh, sorry. Um, No, because you were saying they, they can't raise money during early access. Do you mean they can't? What, what, can you just expand on that a little bit? Oh, well, yeah, it's like, so a bunch of them will become self-sustainable and they'll raise enough to keep developing, but it won't, it generally won't bring in enough to, to really build out the game the way they originally had envisioned. A lot of developers that I meet really small studios who have this huge idea of what their game could be at the end of development and then they realize they only have enough money to do a tiny little portion of it and and then the idea is you put that tiny portion onto early access and you make enough money from sales to build out the rest of the game which is like 75% of it or something like that 80% and the money that they're bringing in from early access if it's enough to even keep the lights on and keep the staff on staff, then it's really like all of a sudden you have to do not just game development, but also what's called live ops, which is is keeping a live game alive. So bug fixing in every patch, making sure that there's communication with the community and that their feedback is coming back into the team and doing reskins of of broken stuff um there's all these things that happen when a game is out in the public that you don't have to do when you're just developing in your in your development cave and and (laughs) that adds cost to it so it actually becomes even more expensive to make the same game that you had originally planned out if you're going to early access most people don't think about that Okay. That's actually super interesting. I didn't know a lot of that. Yeah. Learn something. Yeah, definitely. Learn something from real professionals here on Real Professional. <laughs> actually, you know, speaking of, of expensive and not expensive, part of the reason why studios will make a, a sequel, that's not a sequel. Like, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Warframe is set in the same universe as their previous game because then they could reuse a lot of the world building components. Yeah, the the assets were cheap. (laughs) Assets, but also the underlying game engine sort of code base, they probably could have reused a bunch of that. Story, lore, you name it. Like there's probably a lot of stuff that they were able to carry over in that type of situation. That's that's true, but lore is cheap. You can go to, everyone wants to create their own. (laughs) anime universe just go to just go to any college campus and say i'll make your your idea a video game billions of (laughs) billions of kids will come flocking uh christine you got anything else 
No, that was it for me. Anyone else have any uh, questions here? Because I got a, a just one or two wrap up ones here, real quick. Um, you know, so anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? All right. Um, so the, the the thing is, is like, given that you are a person who who thinks in a your brain has been molded and shaped to think about marketability and outreach and okay, things like that. What's something that you haven't had a chance to work on that you have really good ideas for and would like to? Huh? So, okay. I have to break that out into two bits because there's the thing that I would like to work on. I don't have any good ideas for, but I would love to work on hardware in some capacity. You heard it here. If you're hiring for a hardware person, she has no good ideas, but would like to anyways. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Ideas come after usage. (laughs) I get it. I get it. But it's like, you know, there's a lot of brands in the games space that have cool stuff and they're doing cool things and they they kind of have budgets that are big enough to do neat things um and i haven't worked on any of those so i don't know i think that would be cool it's so funny you should listen to our uh, episode three which just got put up yesterday because i it actually got put up on soundcloud two days ago but i was busy playing code van and didn't write the article for it but we talked to (laughs) uh aaron from nevermind who uh her game has like a heart rate sensor and also like facial recognition software that recognizes if you're getting scared in her horror game and uh that's the kind of you know weird new tech that's that's fun to kind of play with you know Oh yeah, well, there's all that stuff too, like all the all the games that really bend or push the envelope in terms of of peripherals and weird yeah. stuff that you can do in the game. Like I remember reading in Games for Change ones that Ubisoft made a game that can help people with astigmatism, and they do all this kind of graphical stuff to help your eyeballs learn and. Cool. I think like, I think she's like cool, super weird stuff. Yeah, she's like super involved in games for change. That's one of the things she was talking about last week. Um, so you know, I guess this is just part of the the real professional extended universe. This was the surprise sequel you didn't know about until the last. You had to listen to the last uh, ten minutes to find out this was a surprise sequel to episode. Turns out episode four was a direct continuation of the extended universe of episode three. So. Um, yeah, you I, know what's really funny? So the games industry, in terms of people that work in games, it's huge. It's a massive industry. But at the same time, it's tiny. And everybody knows someone who knows someone. And and I could go... I honestly feel comfortable that, like, I, I could drop down into almost any country on this planet and somehow find game developers somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, just, I don't think anyone knows me. I'm not very noticeable. I'm kind of, I fade into the background very easily. <laughs> it, it is funny when, when Ted scheduled this, uh, this interview, I was like, oh, I know a lot of people at Evolve. I wonder if I know who we're interviewing. <laughs> yeah, um, but, you know, on the flip side of that question, uh, are there any games that you would not like to represent or... If there aren't any games you would not like to represent, what's like a challenging one that you would like to get your hands on, like just because it's so challenging? So, yeah, this one's a tricky one. Honestly, I think I 
my my super duper crazy first priority all the time is is I really value my working relationships. And so my in terms of games, if I'm comfortable with the game developers or and or the publishers and I like working with certain people, then I'm down to try anything. I think it's I think that's the fun challenge of this job is that instead of working on one game for three years, I get to try working on all kinds of different games from all kinds of different universes with wacky ideas, boring ideas, like quiet ideas. It's, it's the gambit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool. So I, I would never want to rule something out before I can actually dive into it. I try and play every single game that I work on a lot so that I have a good understanding of how to talk about it and what to talk to people about related to it and also the best fit in terms of like if I play a horror game I'm going to think of talking to you because you also like horror stuff because I'm horrifying yeah oh geez (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah so like like in in the real world, is there anything I would shy away from? Yeah, I mean something illegal or like with kitty porn or you know something like that. I don't want to touch that, obviously. But if it's if it's an out there idea, if it's a bit wacky, I'm I'm game to give it a shot for sure. Yeah, so you won't you won't be representing our Jeffrey Epstein RPG. No. <laughs> <laughs> that you know what that being said. I don't actually choose my clients, so... <laughs> yeah, fair enough. If we can get Tom on board for the Jeffrey Epstein RPG. <laughs> which we are not making, just to be very clear. Um, <laughs> anyways, yeah, uh, Astrid, I want to I thank you so much for uh, jumping on with us today. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I know that I uh, see you at E3 and various conventions and stuff, and, you know, it's, it's just really cool to be able to hear from someone in the industry who's... Working on the not only the other side of who I deal with, but in an aspect of the industry that uh, a lot of people would consider to be, you know, behind the scenes. You're not the the the, the Hideo Kojima. You're not the face of whatever, you know. But you yeah, are or the pay it person taking that photo. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you're an, you're an integral part of this working relationship. And a lot of people, they see games as this monolithic kind of like, they either see it as like the YouTube shock compilation side, which is why so many people get into that because it seems like an easy avenue into the games industry, but they don't realize that like that's influencer status is, is, is often fleeting and not entirely a job. And then the working side, they it's like, how do I even get into the games industry? So hearing from someone that's more on the community side is always... Is, is super interesting and and hopefully it gives people an idea of just how wide-reaching the, the industry can be to get into. So do you have anything to pitch before I go? Mythgard's a pretty cool game. It's a, a, a card game on your phone. I've been playing it at the gym. It's pretty good. Anything else? Let's see. Uh, last two weeks ago, we launched Mythgard, which is a CCG uh, in an urban fantasy kind of universe. I also released The Sojourn, which is a puzzle game that's kind of relaxing and soothing, a bit mind-bendy. And then on the first, we're launching Sniper Elite 3 Ultimate Edition on the Switch. 
And also on the second is the Everspace 2 Kickstarter campaign that will kick off. And uh, I think that's it for like my near vicinity. <laughs> and for as for far as the sojourn is uh, concerned, we will have a review for that up uh, soon because uh, I plan to play it after Code Vein, but as I explained, Code Vein is an anime game and it takes very long. So. Cool. <laughs> you heard it here. I promise I'll review it. I'm actually going to go go home after the podcast and start playing it because my code rate vein review is almost done. So speaking of being done and being able to go home, I want to first off thank the rest of our cast for being here today. Jesse, Christine, and Remy, you all want to say bye? Any of that stuff? Bye. Sure. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on again. Yeah, thank of course. You. And uh, once again... Thank you for uh, Astrid for being here from Evolve PR. You can, uh, I don't know, if you're on Twitter or anything, you want to pitch any of that. Yeah, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> At? Astrid, A-S-T-R-I-D, Rosemarin, R-O-S-E-M-A-R-I-N. And once again... And slow that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just we'll, we'll have it in the video description below. Don't worry about that or the pod description. It's not video. Um, and uh, don't forget that you can see Christine streaming at The Smallest Burb on Twitch. You can also uh, read all of our reviews at dreadxp.com, not Dread Central. That's our old site, um, although all of my old articles there. So you can see me write lists of the best found footage movies because, you know, that's how you get paid. Uh, lists coming soon, terrible hack editorials, sellout content, all coming to you soon from the good people at DreadXP when we uh, decide that we have no artistic integrity and just want to make money. So... Till then, keep tuning in for bad jokes and not knowing what we're going to be talking about beforehand. And uh, bye. Bye. It feels weird with our founding fathers watching me. It feels weird with our founding fathers watching me. I actually keep pictures of our founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and Hamilton in my house. It feels a little weird to watch something embracing royalty. There you go, Alexander Hamilton, respect.